Section 17 of The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Part 1, Book the Second, Chapter 7. Superhuman Horrors. On their part, it was with wild jubilee and delight that those on board the hooker saw the hostile land recede and lessen behind them. By degrees, the dark ring of ocean rose higher, dwarfing in twilight Portland, Purbeck, Tynum, Kimmeridge, the Matraverse, the long streaks of dim cliffs, and the coast dotted with lighthouses. England disappeared. The fugitives had now nothing round them but the sea. All at once, night grew awful. There was no longer extent nor space. The sky became blackness and closed in round the vessel. The snow began to fall slowly. A few flakes appeared. They might have been ghosts. Nothing else was visible in the course of the wind. They felt as if yielded up. A snare lurked in every possibility. It is in this cavernous darkness that in our climate the polar waterspout makes its appearance. A great muddy cloud, like to the belly of a hydra, hung over ocean, and in places its lividity adhered to the waves. Some of these adherences resembled pouches with holes, pumping the sea, disgorging vapor, and refilling themselves with water. Here and there these suctions drew up cones of foam on the sea. The boreal storm hurled itself on the hooker. The hooker rushed to meet it. The squall and the vessel met as though to insult each other. In the first mad shock, not a sail was clued up, not a jib lowered, not a reef taken in. So much is flight a delirium. The mast creaked and bent back as if in fear. Cyclones in our northern hemisphere circle from left to right in the same direction as the hands of a watch, with a velocity which is sometimes as much as sixty miles an hour. Although she was entirely at the mercy of that whirling power, the hooker behaved as if she were out in a moderate weather, without any further precaution than keeping her head on to the rollers with the wind brought on the bow so as to avoid being pooped or caught broadside on. This semi-prudence would have availed her nothing in case of the wind's shifting and taking her aback. A deep rumbling was brewing up in the distance. The roar of the abyss, nothing can be compared to it. It is the great brutish howl of the universe, what we call matter, that unsearchable organism, the amalgamation of incommensurable energies, in which can occasionally be detected an almost imperceptible degree of intention which makes us shudder, that blind, benighted cosmos, that enigmatical pan, has a cry, a strange cry, prolonged, obstinate, and continuous, which is less than speech and more than thunder. That cry is the hurricane. Other voices, songs, melodies, clamors, tones, proceed 
from nests, from broods, from pairings, from nuptials, from homes. This one, a trumpet, comes out of the naught, which is all. Other voices express the soul of the universe. This one expresses the monster. It is the howl of the formless. It is the inarticulate finding utterance in the indefinite. A thing, it is full of pathos and terror. Those clamors converse above and beyond man. They rise, fall, undulate, determine waves of sound, form all sorts of wild surprises for the mind, now burst close to the ear with the importunity of a peal of trumpets, now assail us with the rumbling hoarseness of distance. Giddy uproar, which resembles a language, and which, in fact, is a language. It is the effort with which the world makes to speak. It is the lisping of the wonderful. In this wail is manifested, vaguely, all that the vast dark palpitation endures, suffers, accepts, rejects. For the most part, it talks nonsense. It is like an excess of chronic sickness, and rather an epilepsy diffused than a force employed. We fancy that we are witnessing the descent of supreme evil into the infinite. At moments we seem to discern a reclamation of the elements, some vain effort of chaos to reassert itself over creation. At times it is a complaint. The void bewails and justifies itself. It is as the pleading of the world's cause. We can fancy the universe is engaged in a lawsuit. We listen. We try to grasp the reasons given, the redoubtable for and against. Such a moaning of the shadows has the tenacity of a syllogism. Here is a vast trouble for thought. Here is the raison d'etre of mythologies and polytheisms. To the terror of those great murmurs are added superhuman outlines melting away as they appear, humanities, which are almost distinct, throats of furies shaped in the clouds, Plutonian chimeras almost defined. No horrors equal those sobs, those laughs, those tricks of tumult, those inscrutable questions and answers, those appeals to unknown aid. Man knows not what to become in the presence of that awful incantation. He bows under the enigma of those draconian intonations. What latent meaning have they? What do they signify? What do they threaten? What do they implore? It would seem as though all bonds were loosened. Vociferations from precipice to precipice, from air to water, from the wind to the wave, from rain to the rock, from the zenith to the nadir, from stars to the foam, the abyss unmuzzled, such is that tumult, complicated by some mysterious strife with evil consciences. The loquacity of night is not less lugubrious than its silence. One feels it in the anger of the unknown. Night is a presence. Presence of what? For that matter, we must distinguish between night and the shadows. In the night, there is the absolute. In the darkness, the multiple. Grammar, logic as it is, 
admits of no singular for the shadows. The night is one, the shadows are many. This mist of nocturnal mystery is the scattered, the fugitive, the crumbling, the fatal. One feels earth no longer, one feels the other reality. In the shadow, infinite and indefinite, lives something or someone. That which lives there forms a part of our death. After our earthly passage, when the shadow shall be light for us, the life which is beyond our life shall seize us. Meanwhile, it appears to touch and try us. Obscurity is a pressure. Night is, as it were, a hand placed on our soul. At certain hideous and solemn hours, we feel that which is beyond the wall of the tomb encroaching on us. Never does this proximity of the unknown seem more eminent than in storms at sea. The horrible combines with the fantastic, the possible interrupter of human actions, the old cloud compeller, has in his power to mold, in whatsoever shape he chooses, the inconsistent element, the limitless incoherence, the force diffused and undecided of aim. That mystery, the tempest every instant accepts and executes some unknown changes of will, apparent or real. Poets have, in all ages, called this the caprice of the waves. But there is no such thing as caprice. The disconcerting enigmas, which in nature we call caprice, and in human life chance, are splinters of a law revealed to us in glimpses. End of section 17 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Real Medina, Texas